verse number 12 of Revelation chapter number 2. And it says, And to the angel in the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of, of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And I, as we're going to get into it tonight, I do find it interesting that, that God didn't, how he words it wasn't saying that they were all wholesale doing what the doctrine of Balaam was, or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, but they were holding, they were allowing others to be in their presence that held to these very things, which was a, they were tolerating a problem. They were tolerating this. In a day and age that's talking about tol toleration, I'm going to tell you this, some toleration is not good, and they were tolerating things that weren't good within, their, within the church, the church there. So look in verse number 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, let's go ahead. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll be seated tonight. Lord, I thankful we could be here tonight and, and opening up your word and really God it comes down to you to enlightening our understanding and opening up what your word says to us tonight and God I just pray that you'll help us to come to the central idea and the thought that is contained in this letter here and God ultimately that we will not just hear what is being said but that we will put it into practice God we will apply it God, I pray that your spirit will move hearts tonight and that you will do a work that we can sit back and truly recognize it was you who did it all. God, I just thank you for this time and I pray in Christ's name, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> so some, some time ago when I was living in Minot, I had done some Bible study through the book of Revelation, so I'd come to... Uh, had done the, some of the background for knowing where I was going at, and though this is not a rehashed message, it's probably 20, it saved me some time in studying uh, for this message, but in, in that, I had recalled, I had come across this survey in there that Ken Ham had given, and uh, so I found it again on the internet, and I and it had a link on there to click to what I thought was going back to that same survey that, that I had looked at because I wanted to, to delve into it. Well, it was the same group of people, but it was their latest survey from last year. So the one I looked at was in 2016, and so we're a few years removed. And so every two years, they, they would redo this uh, survey. And uh, in this survey, it was regarding... Uh, Bible truths or, or doctrines, 
and it was by this group, Legionnaire uh, Ministries and Lifeway Research. And they partnered together to make this survey, and in, and in quotes, the survey says this, to take the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insight for discipleship. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a healthy survey to be, to, to be getting into, but to take the theological uh, the, uh, temperature. And uh, so in this survey, they, they've split it up in basically two parts. Uh, parts uh, the same question would be asked to two different groups of people. One would be those that would classify themselves as being non-Christian and non-evangelical. And, the, and uh, the other one would be those that would identify themselves as being evangelical. For the sake of illustration tonight, we're just going to drop out those that are non-Christian because primarily we are dealing with those that would, would profess to know the name of Christ, that, that you would say that you are a believer, that you are, that you are a Christian, so we are going to go with, with that route. And so they, some of the things that they, they asked it was questions like this. Does God change? 48% of them agreed, but 43% of them disagreed that God changes. Kind of remarkable. Are we born innocent? Are we born innocent? This is remarkable. 65% agree that we are born innocent, and 35% said that uh, 32% disagreed. Does every Christian have an obligation to join a church? 68% agreed, but uh, 26% uh, disagreed with that statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% agreed that God just accepts all religion across the board. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of people agreed with that, with that statement. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. So in other words, religious belief is, is subjective, not objective in its approach. 38% of people agree that, that um, so uh, religious matters and beliefs are just 38% said it's up to what you feel like it is. Then it says in there, uh, gender identity is a matter of choice. 37% believe that gender identity is a matter of, of choice. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 28% agreed with that statement. Now you may be saying, well, this... You said evangelical. That's way, that scope is really broad. But they defined in this survey what an evangelical is. And maybe it's a little bit narrower than what you're even thinking in your mind. An evangelical to them met these four requirements. The Bible is the highest authority to what I believe. I think I would agree with that one. Secondly is the importance of getting non-Christians to trust Jesus for their Savior. That that's important. I believe that also. I would agree with that. And Jesus' death on the cross is the only remedy for sin. I think I'm, I think I'm three for three on that one. Number four is, only those who trust, as, trust in Christ as Savior will gain eternal salvation. 
Well, I think I would go along with all of those things. I think by this survey that I would go along. So this evangelical thing that you may say, well, this is so broad, it doesn't apply to us in this room. Oh, it's very narrow. And I believe that we fall into this survey more than maybe we would even want to confess and to admit tonight. And in this survey, they made this conclusion uh, to this. The, uh, the 2022 State of Theology survey reveals that Americans increasingly reject the divine origin and complete accuracy of the Bible. With no enduring plumb line of absolute truth to conform to, U.S. adults are increasingly holding to unbiblical worldviews related to human sexuality. In the evangelical sphere, doctrines including the deity and exclusivity of Jesus Christ, as well as the inspiration and authority of the Bible, are increasingly being rejected. While positive trends are present, including evangelicals' views on abortion and sex outside of marriage, now listen, an inconsistent biblical ethic is also evident. With more evangelicals embracing a secular worldview, a non-Christian worldview, a secular worldview in the areas of homosexual and gender identity. And so as I was reading this article and I was thinking about it and then listening to their conclusion and their results, it was alarming. And really it should be alarming to all of us. And what was so alarming to me is these questions in my mind, I should have been either 100% agreed or 100% di disagreed. That, that we're not 100% on, on whether we're born innocent or not. Whether we're born fallen creatures in need of redemption. And over six, there, there's a percentage of 60 some percent that believe that we're born okay into this world. That, there, that gender identity that there's, and homosexuality is finding an acceptance at 25% or greater amongst those that would claim to know the name of Christ. And in this survey, it made it very clear that, that as they do this every two years, these numbers aren't declining. They are gaining each and every, every year. I would like to tell you that the, in two years from now, that 28% who, who didn't have a problem with gender identity, I'm guessing that's going to be over 30% by the next time, that they, next time they, they do that. And, and it's, it's alarming to me and uh, to what is going on because this survey can, confirms the reality that this, that more and more that, um, the, uh, the, more and more the world and its philosophy is doing more to influence the church than the church is doing to influence it. Now I want you to get that. I believe more and more what this survey is teaching that the world and its influence is impacting the church more than the church is impacting the world around it. Now that's convicting because that the world and its thinking and its philosophies and its ways are swaying more to us and are changing our lives more than you and I presenting ourselves in such a way that we are changing the world around us and collectively as a church. And so this trend that, was, that is taking place, it is alarming. But may I say to you tonight, it's nothing new. It's an age-old problem. You see, in writing this letter to the church in Pergamos, Jesus was dealing with this subject matter head-on. The church in Pergamos started out strong, 
But their situation was changing. They started off in a, in a right way, but their situation is beginning to change. The world that they had once stood firmly against was now the world that was starting to influence them. They had an influence in Pergamos, but now Pergamos was starting to influence, influence them in, in, in their lives. And the, the, Jesus wanted this church and its people to be people of conviction. That we're going to stand for the Bible and against the influences of the world that was around them. And that same message that Christ uh, gives to the church in Pergamos, again, is as just as relevant to us today. That God is searching out for churches, for individuals that will take a conviction and take a stand on the word of God. That instead of being influenced by the world that they live in, the culture that they live in, the context that they live in, that instead of being influenced by that, that they will be the influencers of their culture, of the world that is around, uh, around them. A lot of people want to be influencers anymore on the internet, but the real influencers shouldn't be found on the internet, but the real influencers should be found in the pews and the people that I'm looking at tonight. This is where the real influencers should lie tonight, should lie within this group of people that, that we have here. And I believe if we are going to be the influencers in a world and a society that we live in today, then whatever we can learn from Pergamos, we should take it to heart tonight. Because I can tell you this, Pergamos doesn't exist anymore. You want to know why? Because the influence of their society and culture around them has swallowed them up to where they're no longer in existence any longer today. And Christ had warned them. And I will tell you the same thing. If we want our church to be swallowed up by the world's influence, we want our teenagers to be swallowed up, we want marriages to be swallowed up, we, we want our children to be swallowed up, we want, we want our, our, our newly married couples swallowed up, I'm going I'm to tell you this, don't learn from this letter. But if you said, that's not what I want, that's not the desire I want, I want this church and I want its believers to be strong, I want them to be influencers, then we must take a, a cold hard look, really, at what God is saying here in, in Pergamos and, and taking its application to our lives. So as we look at this letter to the church in Pergamos, unlike some of the other church letters that we find in the other churches I mentioned, we don't know a lot about the church in Pergamos. We know where it's at, obviously, because the Bible says it's in Pergamos. But we don't know how it got started. We don't, we don't have a book in the Bible called Ephesians that was written to the church in Ephesus, which we know a lot about. We've got some written documentation about Smyrna and their, and their preacher that died and was martyred. And we get an idea from that. And we get an idea from Paul's writing, or the writings and the works of Paul and Acts that we can say, all right, Smyrna and all this works together, but we have none of that in there. But I think I can come to make some observations tonight, and if you'll follow me through these observations, we can draw a, a general conclusion that we can know something definite about this church. Now, and we, so we need to look at it historically, a historical observation um, about, the, about this city. 
You see, Pergamos, again, like a lot of the other cities, um, were dedicated to idolatry. And the idolatry that existed in Pergamos, it seemed like every city had its own little thing that was unique to it. And uh, the church in Pergamos had, had, its, um, had its own unique uh, gods and, uh, that they would worship and, and how they do it. And probably most of us have seen one of their gods on a regular basis. Maybe even seen it this week. I would even think, I, we have Brother Huntington in here tonight. He's a doctor. And I uh, don't know how much you know about this, but you have seen the God of Pergamos a lot. The God of Pergamos was a, a God, and I'll see if I can get the, get the uh, name right. I was uh, trying to practice it, but it's Asclepius. Now Asclepius, he is known for having a rod with a snake around it. We see a rod with a snake around it on on the on medical crosses, you see that, and with medicine all the time. It's dealing with this God here. And so this God, what it was, he was, the, he, the, he um, was this God of healing. He had daughters like Panacea, and uh, he had a daughter named Hygiena. So, I mean, I may be birching the names wrong, but you get the idea. This was a medical center. I mean, that's what, this was what was going on in Pergamos. They were a medical center there, and they would believe this, that if you went and slept in the temple, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of ladies that wish they were following this religion, that if you just slept in the temple there, and one of these non-poisonous snakes uh, crawled over you in the middle of the night, then uh, God either healed you or was giving you a revelation of something that was going to come. I don't think a lot of women follow that religion. That didn't seem like a very good idea. But it was known, but a lot of people were into that superstition and believing that this kind of stuff, it was healing. So I want you to get that clue. That, it is a clue. There's healing that is, that's taking place there. In their mind's eye anyways. Second thing that they had going on at, at this time was there was a, a great competition going on between Pergamos and the city of Alexandria, Egypt at this time. They, and my kids would have loved being in existence, I think, at this time. They were having a battle who could have the biggest library and uh, who could have the biggest library in the world. And I mean, I want you to just think about this. The day and age, no printing press. They're writing books. They're writing on scrolls and parchment. Well, Alexandria would end up with 400,000 scrolls and books. Some say maybe even up to 700,000 because it got burnt to the ground. We don't know. But Pergamos, I mean, they weren't up there, but they had 200,000. They had a very large library there. And the church in Alexandria, they didn't, like, uh, they didn't like that library. And so they wouldn't sell them the paper or the goods so they could write stuff. So then they uh, invented their own, own uh, writing materials. The word parchment comes from a Latin word which comes from Pergamos. They invented their own parchment. And so they, they were making their own books. They were, in, they were into books and learning. And uh, the, you could go down, to the, go down to your library, just like you do today. They would open up the scrolls. There was philosophers and teachers from the world that they would, they would, uh, they would basically have four years. And these philosophers would be there teaching their word, teaching their doctrine, teaching what they would consider their truth in this, in this, uh, in this library here. So historically, uh, we can know these basic facts about them. 
there are words that we need to understand. There's, they were known for healing. They were known for books, and they were known for the parchments. The words contained uh, the words on a page, parchment. Okay, So I know that from a historical perspective. But I also know this from looking at this letter, that another observation that we can make just by looking at this letter. Jesus twice in this letter, it says in this, in verse number one, these things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And he goes, um, goes on in verse 16 at the end of it, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So God makes it very clear, and we know when God speaks about the uh, a sword with two edges coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, what comes out of your mouth generally, generally are words. And so we are talking then about the very words of God, the sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So we know this, that it's referencing then, we are dealing then with the word of God, that is dealing with the words of Christ we're dealing with, with that teaching, all right? We also know, we, we know this. They are dealing with doctrine. Is doctrine not mentioned twice in here? Doc, doctrine of Balaam and the, uh, the doctrine of the uh, Nicolaitans. So obviously, doctrine or instruction and teaching was a part of this, out of this letter. So I'm just taking some observations, trying to figure out what's going on with this church here because I really don't know anything about it. I know this from a historical perspective, there, there's healing, they're, they're, they're into books, and they're into, into, into the writings, and uh, learning from these books here. Then on a, on a spiritual level, I know that this, we are dealing with the word of God, and we're dealing with doctrine, teaching, and instruction. See, the historical is Jesus is using to bleed into a spiritual. He's using it as an illustration. See, we know this. That they, they believed in a healing that, and, and a learning that came from these books. And what Jesus was pointing to this and what we know about this church is they found healing not through snakes crawling all over their body. They had found healing through the word of God. They had found healing and teaching and the instructions of the very word, word of God that they had here. So we could safely say, and I think make a right assumption, if there's one thing I can say about this church and the fact that it's called a church is it was a, a church that was founded on the word of God. That this was a, what you would cl classify as a classical Bible-believing preaching church. They had, they had gotten the word of God. I don't know who brought it to them, but when they heard the word of God, it had changed their lives. They were a church built upon the book. But they didn't just, they weren't just built upon the book. But they were a people that were also living by that very book. They were not going with the philosophies that were being taught uh, at the library downtown. No, they were going with the teachings of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were going with that doctrine. And see, when you look at them they, and Jesus' testimony, you can clearly see they did have some things going, going for them. And they started out very well. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even the days where Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, we know they were living, they were living by the book. Just that phrase alone. 
they were holding fast in the seat of Satan. Now, there's a lot of what I'm reading here, and I'm telling you this, Satan is still alive, and he's still at work, and he's not just some cartoon character by Christ's testimony, that there was clearly uh, evil, diabolical powers that were at work. And for some reason, and we can speculate what the reasons are, but we can make one safe assumption and one safe truth to this, is that Satan had found a stronghold in Pergamos. And in Pergamos, Satan had found a, a hold, and there, it was it was a very it was a very dark and evil place to live. And this church said, "I don't care that we are living in the presence of a, of an adversary, that we are living in front of his stronghold, that we are facing the strength and power of Satan himself. We are going to hold fast to the name of Christ." In other words, they had decided they were going to be... What they had heard from the Bible wasn't just good truth. It is something that developed core convictions into their heart and lives that said, we are going to hold fast to the word word of God. It wasn't just like, well, preacher, that was a good message. No, that was a great message, and I'm going to, I'm going to live, live by that. I will, I, will, I will put myself on the line for that. Are you, really, are you really serious they would go that far in their convictions that they would just lay themselves out like that? Well, the one historical thing that we do know is what Christ said is about a man named Antipas. Christ called him a faithful witness, which would let me know that whenever, whenever and however Antipas, well, I know the however, he got saved through the Lord Jesus Christ by putting faith in him. And from that moment on, he, he was sold out for him. He was a faithful witness, and he died as a martyr. He died because he wanted to be an influencer instead of being influenced. He was holding fast to the name of Christ. Tradition has it that Antipas died this way. They had a, they had a God there that was, that was a bull, bull God. And Antipas wouldn't have anything to do with it. So they took old Antipas out. They made a big brass bull. Big enough to put a man in. Threw Antipas in a, in a brass bowl and heated it up underneath a fire and burned him to death in a, in, a, in a brass bowl. All he had to do is, at some point, all he had to do was just submit. All he had to do is say, you know what? I will worship. I will do the sacrifice you ask me to. That's all he had to do. But he refused. He was going to hold fast to the name of Christ. He had a conviction about him. He was going to hold fast to that very thing. And that's what was going on in this church. They were, um, they were people that, were, that had deep convictions. They were in the uh, seat of Satan. It was, not a, uh, it was not a favorable situation. It said they held fast to the faith. By the faith, it's not just having faith in God, but the truth and the doctrine that was delivered to them. The faith once delivered unto the saints. They were going to hold to the word of God. You can have your 200,000 volumes of books in your library, but I need one book alone. The one book is God's word. I'm going to live by that, and we're going to die by that, and I would rather die than compromise on that very thing. Now, that was, there was a, a, a church, a, a, a really, this is, they were, it wasn't enough to say, we're Bible-believing Christians, but we are not just Bible believing, we are Bible livers. 
And we are, we are going to rest and we, we are going to live our lives according to this, regardless of the cost uh, that, it, that it made. One writer said, or one preacher said, there was a true church here. There was a growing church here. There's a real church there, a safe church, waging an uncompromising war at the throne of Satan. They were doing well enough to be commended by Christ. Now, before we get all over them, and Christ did commend them. He said, I recognize what you're doing. You are people of deep, deep conviction. And I can, I can appreciate that. I like that. And what Pergamos was, I would say to you, is what every church and what every Christian should be. See, the church in Pergamos was a church with convictions held steadfastly to the name of Christ. And they were being an example to everybody else. What we see here in Pergamos is this is what God desires out of each and every one of us. That God wants us to be people of conviction. That God wants us to be people that we are not collecting Bible truths. We are not just hearing sermons. But we're going to start having convictions that we live by God's word or we don't live at all. You said that's an extreme position. That's the only position as a child of God that we have is that I will either live by the book or I will not live at all. God is looking for believers and Christians in, in, in our day and age to have, have a sense of conviction about them. No longer can we use this excuse without we live in an, an environment that is unhealthy. We live in a, in a society-filled filled, uh, world we have a media that's bombarding us. We have people that are ungodly all around us. And I would tell you this, they were in the seat of Satan. And at the minimum, if we're there, I believe maybe we're closer to that. We do see the working and power of evil in our own day and age. But the reality is there's no excuse for us not to have conviction and to live by exactly what the word of God is. I praise the Lord that if you're saved and like this church here, it was founded on the word of God, but you need to live by the word of God. You, we need to be convicted to, to live. It needs to be that way. We need young people that are going to be convicted that my purity matters, that I don't need to, I don't need to have physical relationships with another person of the opposite sex until God puts me in place to marry somebody. We need, we, need, we need some purity in our, we need some convictions in our, in our marriage. That, yeah, every single marriage is going to have problems. And every single marriage is going to have bad days. And every single marriage, you're going to have the day where either your wife wants to hang you or, or you want to throw her out to the street. But the reality is we have a conviction that God says, what he has put together that we will not divide, we will, we will hold fast to our marriage and we will let God work this out. We need people of conviction in their marriage. We need, we need conviction of people at their workplace that's saying this, that God says that I do not work as unto you, but I work unto the Lord. That I'm going to work all eight hours that I'm scheduled to work. That I'm going to give my absolute dead level best. And when I go home, I will pass out in the chair because I know I gave it 100%. Because not because they deserve it, but a conviction of God's word. We need a conviction we need convictions where my church life is the number one priority in my life over every other thing. The conviction that 
like what pastor is preaching here this morning, that every time and everything that I can be available for, that I'm willing to, to be here for. That kind of conviction. That kind of conviction like Sammy had preached on Wednesday night, to sacrifice what you need to be so you can be here at church. If it means taking a lesser job or switching the job you've been at for 30 years so you can be here. That's what it's talking about. We need people of conviction. People that's going to say, you know what? I'm not ashamed to make my girls girls and my boys be boys. That it's all right that my boys be tough. It's all right if my boys that, that, that I raise, that they like to eat dirt and make guns out of sticks and all sorts of other things like that. And as I mentioned in Sunday school, blow up things with firecrackers. Hell, I'm just telling you, I want my boys to be boys. A conviction about that, teaching your boys to be, grow up to be godly men and, your, and the young ladies to be godly young ladies. You don't have to be boisterous and outgoing. You can be spiritual. It's the inner workings of the heart that God's impressed with. Not how you dress, not how you look, how you appear, but conviction of developing a quiet and meek spirit about you. I'm just telling you. The list can go on, but what I'm trying to tell you is this, that God wants us to be developed into people of conviction. That, we, that this Bible is not just a suggestion book. That whatever God tells me in this book, and I'm constantly learning from this book, that I'm going to learn from this book, and then when truth presents itself to me, that's what I'm going to die on. That I'm not going to change from that position. I'm going to be convicted about that. But you know, we need to be, as I was thinking about this, being people of conviction. Just an illustration that happened to me. I work at Fairway in Laverne, and uh, we have one other grocery store. We'll, we'll give them the credit tonight. They are a grocery store. Sunshine Foods is in Laverne. And uh, it always feels awkward because we're just a meat market, so I can't buy all my groceries at the meat market. So I have to go over to the enemy's side to go buy groceries. <laughs> and I... And I and like in the winter time, I had my fairway stocking hat, and there was times that I would take my hat off because I was just like, you know, I, I, felt, I felt strange about that, you know, and just like, I'm going to take that off. They don't know that I'm working for fairway and that type of thing. But then as I was studying for this message and, and uh, a little bit ago, I was, it was in the morning right before I go to work, and I run to go get, some, go get some milk. It was actually on July 4th, and I go get some milk. And, uh, but I had to work at 8, so that's like 7, well, I'm like, I'm not changing my work shirt. And the thought occurred to me when I got out of, out of my vehicle. And I'm like, you're wearing a fairway shirt going into sunshine. And I'm like, yes, you are. And the, and the thought came to my mind that God is saying, don't be, don't be afraid to show what you are. You know where you work and just walk in there, buy your groceries. Because he said, that's exactly the kind of conviction I'm looking for in your own Christian life. Someone who's willing to wear and to live by that shirt every single day and walk into a store, no matter how awkward it is, that by conviction, I'm going to live that life for Christ. Well, I'm going to wear that shirt, and I don't care what store I walk into, that shirt's going to be on me. But when we look at this church here in Pergamos, just as unfortunately with, with others, the church in Pergamos had great convictions 
but their convictions were giving way to compromise. The problem in the church in Pergamos is a real danger for all of us. In Jesus' examination of this church, they were giving away to compromise. Compromise means to make concessions or accommodations for someone who does not agree with a certain set of standards or rules. And for the Christian, it, it therefore means making concessions or making accommodations which do not agree with the Bible. Real briefly here tonight, they, they were making compromises in this. See, as I mentioned before, it wasn't that they were outright teaching the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but they were accommodating them. It's okay. You can come in here. You can be a part of our group. I know you don't believe the same we do, but we'll let you in in our, in our church. You see, the, the doctrine of Balaam, and just real in a nutshell, Balaam, if you'll remember, was hired by King Balak to try to curse the nation of Israel, and God wasn't having anything to do, do with that. And Balaam was getting paid a handsome amount of money for this. So three times uh, Balaam went up there to try to get a cursing on God's people. Failed every time. But Balaam, man, what a wonderful man. He was a man of persistence. And he told Balak, I can about imagine the conversation and closed doors, you know what, this whole cursing thing, we got to scrap this. We got to go back to the drawing board. See, this whole, this whole thing is not going to work. But if we get them to entice them to make, destroy themselves, then we've got something on our hands. Well, what do you think we should do? Well, you know, God really only wants to be worshipped, but he only wants to be worshipped. Share it with nobody else. And, you know, he's, he doesn't really want them to be marrying other, other ladies of the land and stuff. So I've got this foolproof plan. We'll send some of the Moabite women over to the Israelites. We'll just send the really good-looking ones, and we'll make sure they're very per provocative. And we'll make sure that no man can say no to their, their temptation. And the Bible lets us know that they hatched this plan, and they sent these women over to them because th these women were into their idolatrous practices, which included sexual issues and sexual immorality. And before long... They were committing immorality with these women and begin to worship their gods. And did God like that? Not at all. In one day, 24,000 people were dropped because of this council of Balaam. What Balaam had taught with the nation of Israel is that they, 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 could, compromise, they, they could compromise their ethics and, and morality here. That they could still be God's people, but they could also compromise their morality at the same time. It's pretty devastating to think about it. Like I can, be a, I can be God's people, but then I can also live in immorality, worship false gods, and I can also have a, a illicit, illegal relationships with the people of the opposite sex and still call on God at the same time. Is that not compromise? Most certainly. The, the Nicolaitans, from the more I read about it uh, and the more I understand it is many times that their issue was is this is breaking down that, that wall between, between um, the spiritual and then the pagan side, that you can both be, in other words, have a part with Rome and be a part of their pagan religion and also worship God at the same time. In other words, they were breaking down the walls of separation. 
So you, you basically overall is this, and we've been teaching this in Sunday school, and it's amazing how it comes up here. They were breaking down these walls of holiness and walking, walking in the way that God wanted them to do. That I can be the name of Christ, but I, I don't have to live a separated life unto God. I don't live, have to live a holy life unto God. I can be like the world. I can embrace their immorality. I can even have some sin in my life. I can enjoy my flesh, but I can also walk with God also at the same time. And God and Jesus was having none of that. He was not impressed at all with, with, their, with their compromise. Because Jesus said, I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, what he was saying is, the same book that you're compromising, I'm going to judge you with. And the reality is, is this, you've been fighting for, for me for a while at the seat of Satan, but now I am going to be fighting against you, and that is never a winning battle. And the result was this, they were going to lose their influence. Well, how do you know that? The other letters that Jesus was warning them to, that he was going to take their candlestick out. The candlesticks give what? Light. You're to be the light of the world, an influence. You're to be the salt, a preserving element. And he was telling this church, you compromise you continue down that road and I will judge you and you will lose your influence and impact in the world around you and in the city that you find yourself in. And that's the message that, he, that Christ is trying to warn us tonight is this. is He wants us to be people of conviction, but he wants us to look at our own lives as, are we, are we living in compromise? Are we compromising in areas in our life, compromising convictions convictions in our in our lives one one person one article that i read it gave gave some examples i mean what um um what compromise is in four common ways that we compromise through our media um consuming entertainment that is filled with sin against the bible man i just been lately not been using my phone as much and then when i get on there and, and i realize and not being on there, just how much of an influence it is in compromising. Because it might not even be the video you watch, but the advertisement that came up. Or just the words of a news article that are there. And they just become wearing on you over and over and over again. And pretty soon you begin watching videos or TV shows or listening to music or having a playlist that's acceptable for the church people, but you have another playlist that's only acceptable for you in private. It's true that you, it's okay, we have one form of entertainment when we're around the church folk, but you come over to our house on any other night, man, there's some good, good, bad movies out there. I'm serious. That sounds terrible, but yeah, they're, they're saying that. They may not call them bad. It's just fun. It's just entertainment. That's our media consumption. How much do we consume in our media that's a compromise against biblical standards that God wants us wants us to be living by, the convictions that we have, that we, that we take those very things. If you're saying that, then there might be a lot of things I have to deal with in my life. That's what's called living by conviction is. You want to live by conviction or you want to live by compromise. The, they also said politics. Now, I'm not talking about so much getting in the political realm, but we have a lot of political issues right now, especially when it comes to gender identity, homosexuality, things like that. And we are... 
we, if we take a stand for what we believe biblically, what it says about purity and relationships between people, it's very often now that we're going to be labeled as being bigoted, intolerant, hateful, you don't love me any, anymore, love is love. Well, love is, if love is love, then I'll have to let you know then that God doesn't like what you're doing, but he does want to change your life. That's, that's love is love. Love is love is not closing your eyes and pretending like there's no problems. But you see, we are in an environment that if I take a stand for the word of God, I may get ostracized. I may have someone call me a name. I may, I may be run through the social media gauntlet and have my name and reputation destroyed and so I don't want to risk that, so I'm not going to put myself out there. And you don't take a stand when you should be making a stand. Compromise. And then also this, when it's talking about uh, dealing with forgiveness. The world says it's okay to hold a grudge if someone hurts you, so you keep going along with it. Or the words that we use, the world says it doesn't matter what words you use, so you don't watch what you say. I'm just telling you, compromise is on a whole lot of levels. And see, we are to be people of conviction and, and to deal with compromise in our lives and where we are at. And Jesus' message repeatedly is this. If you look at your life and you say, okay, I have these convictions or I know what God says, but I have not been doing that or I used to do that and now I'm doing this or I'm allowing something that I didn't used to allow into my life, then what the Lord says, as he said to this church, you need to repent basically to be so convicted in heart about your compromise that you are saying, I am going to remove that from, from my presence. That's what the Lord wanted the church in Pergamos to do. Those people that have that doctrine, I, I'm telling you this, it's all right if they're not a member of your church. They can go ahead and leave. Because we, he knew the effect that they were going to have. And I think Christ is absolutely right. Because what does he desire within his church? A pure church unspotted by the world. It is in the Bible. Sure it is. And so you look at your life today and you say, are there areas that I'm compromising? Then you need to repent. And you need to remove those things. And then he, then he says, then I think the ultimate is this. You repent. You remove those things. And then we re resist steadfast unto the end. Because the Lord's going to give them, a, give them a promise. And there's a lot of different things you can read about it. But this is the most likely what I believe that what the Lord is saying here is this. Is he says in this, he that hath an ear, ear, uh, uh, ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in that stone a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth. That the, uh, the hidden manna points back to the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, which talked about God's keeping and sustaining power. The white stone referred to a judgment at this time when a judge would make a verdict, a decision. He would cast a black stone if you were guilty, a white stone if you were innocent. And a new name is talking about being a new identity. So Christ is saying, those who overcome, that you are in a new relationship and you're found innocent and you'll stand before God someday. That's the great truth. But it also reveals to me why I want to be steadfast because if you believe that if you're saved that you'll stand before God innocent in a new relationship with him, then the Bible says you will not be judged by your sin, but you'll be judged by the deeds you've done in your body, whether they were good or evil. In other words, 
Christ will talk to you about your compromise and whether you, whether you gave in to that or not. Tonight I had Brother Samuel choose, I, I asked him to sing the song, uh, Hold, the, Hold the Fort, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. I guess I never looked at it as being an old song or, or what, an, an old throwback song, because it's a song that um, I think it just depends on where you're at. Use it, use it all the time. But I, I'm, I've listened to that song, sang it multiple times, and maybe you've sang it too, and I've been at churches, and I've done it myself, where you'll grab your Bible, and when it says, hold the fort for I'm coming, we'll, we'll wave, wave the Bible back. I always thought to myself, what in the world are we doing? You ever ask yourself that in church? What in the world are we doing? Are we just, just doing stuff to be doing stuff? And just, I want to know sometimes, if, if, because I don't want to be just going through vain emptiness. I'm like, well, this is, just seems dumb. I'm like, waving the Bible back to heaven. Well, what in the world is that going to do? But then I, was, I began to find, I found out what the, this song meant. And now it means a whole lot different to me. You see, P.P. Bliss, who wrote this, this um, hymn, he based it off of a story that took place uh, and uh, took place uh, during the World War II. <clears throat> and the story goes that it took place in the Union Army's defense of uh, Altoona Pass. It happened in 1864 of October, and General Sherman was in camp near the neighborhood of Atlanta. He was, he was there. And at that time, the, the, southern, uh, the southern General uh, Hood, uh, he had made a move where he outflanked Sherman and he got around his side and he got behind, got behind Sherman. And uh, he was causing all sorts of problems for, for Sherman. And he was taking out different little garrisons, little different uh, pockets of, uh, and, uh, where they had supplies, blowing up railroads, just being a real pain. And they had one fort that was at Altoona Pass that had over a million rations for their soldiers, food. It was very important for them to do to the Union soldiers to hold that, and so Hood um, decided he was he sent a he sent a general with six thousand troops to assault this this fort with fifteen hundred Union soldiers. Not very good odds, six thousand to fifteen hundred, and so they the Southern Army assaulted uh, this fort at Altoona Pass. And you would expect that the Union soldiers, they were fighting valiantly, but were being pushed back to where they finally got to, they were cornered in one little small fort there. And as they were fighting there, they looked out across the valley and over on, on another mountain peak, there was a flag that was being raised. And it was Sherman was sending him a message. And the message was, hold the fort. For I am coming, General Sherman. And those boys, they rallied. The cheers went up. And they, for three hours, held off these, held off the Southern Army. For three hours, they held off 6,000 men. The leading commander for the Union soldiers was shot three times in the head. The second in command that was taken over, he was wounded. He was down. And but in three hours later, Sherman's front finally broke through and, and they survived through that very thing. And it was from that that P.P. That Bliss made this story 
about Christians holding on to their beliefs, that holding on to the four, when we wave our Bible back to heaven, it is saying, God, I am going to be people of conviction. I am going to hold to this word of God, and I am not going, I'm not going to back down from it. I may be insulted by thousands of influences around me each and every day, but you're going to have to kill me before I surrender this ground here. That I, if I get shot three times in the head, I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to still keep fighting. I'm going to be a person of conviction. I'm going to raise my family with conviction. I'm going to, I'm going to have, try to have teenagers that live by conviction. I'm going to have children that live by conviction. I'm going to have a church that lives by conviction. That's what I'm going to do. And so I believe tonight that God is, wants us to look at our own lives and challenge us. Are we people of conviction? Could we stand before God and if God's standing on the other mountainside there looking at us and we see the flag that we're saying we wave the answer back to heaven, God, I'm going to live by this. God, I'm going to be a person of conviction. This is what I'm going to die upon. This is what I'm going to give myself for. I'm not going to give myself for any other cause but to be convicted and to live by your word. And I'm not going to compromise on conviction. And maybe tonight's just a time of commitment that you say, you know what, I'm going to gather my family down here and I'm going to say, we're going to be people of conviction. We're going to start our family devotions tonight. We're going to be more consistent in that. It may be in your marriage that you need to work some things out and you decide tonight, we're going to have a marriage of conviction. We're going to start having devotions together. We're going to start praying together. We're going to start doing things together for the Lord. And it may be tonight that at teenagers, you may have made conviction, compromises in your own life while among your own friends and even in your own youth group. But I'm just telling you, it's time that you become an example of people of conviction and be able to stand alone, even if that means it. Because I'm going to tell you this, you will draw someone else to you by having convictions more than you will by compromise. Tonight may be the night that you just raise, the, raise your Bible up and say, God, this is what I'm going to be living by. And it may be tonight that you say, you know what? I've been losing the war. Or I've been losing the battle, but you don't have to lose the war. Just because you got shot doesn't mean you have to stay laying on the ground. You just get up and keep fighting. Our commander, as the song says, it's coming. You just hold on. He's already sent the answer to us. Hey, I'm coming back. And lo, I come quickly. And it's in Revelation 19 too. He's coming. And you just hold up. Pastor talked about this morning. He's coming. He's coming. And I'll just tell you this. Let's be people that are like, this Bible, we're going to say, this is what I'm going to wave back. I'm going to hold a fort, and I'm going to hold it for that coming. All right? Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to have a time of invitation here.